You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Well, now we've got this text in front of us, this great chapter, Acts chapter 3. So let's pray. Father, so grateful that we can come together at this time, at this place, and trust that your Holy Spirit is going to speak to us. We trust, Lord, not because we feel like we're deserving of it, not because it's something that you owe to us, but we trust in it, Lord, because you are a loving God and you're not silent. You speak to your people and you speak to those that you're drawing to become your people. And so, Lord, we expect to hear your voice through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we begin Acts chapter 3 this morning, it's probably good for us to remember where we just came from in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 was all about, of course, that great day of Pentecost, that, that, that birthday of the church, when uh, the, the church grew from 120 to 3,000 in one day as, as part of a, an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And that outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God was was evident in a lot of different ways. It was evident in some, frankly, strange phenomenon. Sounds, sights, uh, stirring among God's people. The, the ability to praise God in a spontaneously given, previously unknown language. All of these uh, remarkable, miraculous occurrences were evidences of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But probably greater evidences of the outpouring were the way that God worked through the Apostle Peter to so boldly speak to what was potentially such a hostile crowd. And God really anointed that man to be able to speak at that moment. And then, on top of all that, there, there was the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those who heard. Because they were cut to the heart. And that work of cutting to the heart, it can't be done with a physical sword. Peter had enough of that right in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was trying to cut a guy's ear off. No, no, no. He, he, in sync with the Spirit of God, he saw a marvelous, marvelous work happen by God's Spirit. It was moving in the heart of those that God was calling to himself. And so you have all this evidence of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. But, but Acts chapter 2, I, I think that sometimes the greatest evidence of the power and the work of the Spirit wasn't in any of those sort of dramatic phenomenon it was more in the way that the Spirit of God worked through on a daily basis through that first group of Christians. Because the day of Pentecost, as glorious as it was, it was one day, right? But then as an ongoing work, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I mean, this ongoing work of spiritual health, spiritual growth. Listen, that is a work of the Spirit of God as well. But the inspired historian Luke tells us something very interesting in verse 43 of Acts chapter 2. Look at that again with me right now. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, Oh, Really? Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And I kind of say, well, do tell, Luke. Why didn't you tell us about some of that? And Luke says, I'm glad you asked. Because now in Acts chapter 3, he's going to tell us of one of the many that happened. Let's take a look here, starting at verse 1, Acts chapter 3. 
Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Now, Peter and John went together to the temple at the normal Jewish times for prayer to to pray. Perhaps they also had an evangelistic intent. They knew that other Jewish people would be gathering there. And these were people that they could tell about their Messiah, Jesus. But these two men, Peter and John, were special men. They weren't greater or higher than the other Christians in that day. But they did have a special call, a special purpose in God's plan. And that is they were apostles, special ambassadors of the work of God. And God worked through them, through the apostles. As it says there in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, many signs and wonders. And this is one of the many that happened. So they came to the temple at the hour of prayer. They continued their Jewish custom of prayer at certain hours of the day. Now, I do find it of interest, and sometimes you wonder if you're making too much of things in the Bible. But it is of some interest that it says, if you notice there, it says that they went up, verse 1, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. You say, well, the ninth hour, what's the significance of that? Well, it was just one of the customary Jewish hours of prayer. But we also know, if you wanted to take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. You don't need to turn there, I'll just tell you about it. John, chapter 19, verse 30 tells us that it was at the ninth hour that Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished, and that he yielded his spirit unto God. Maybe they wanted to remember that. Maybe it was so fresh in their memory that they said, listen, at this hour of the day, let's get together for a special time of prayer. And anyway, they're just approaching the temple. They're going up to the beautiful temple courts, the the, the temple grounds. They're collected together with thousands of Jewish people and even Gentile visitors who would be up on the temple courts, but of course who would remain in what was known as the court of the Gentiles. And as they were coming up, they came to a gate that was there on the temple court. This this vast piece of real estate that had different walls, different places. One of the walls had a gate, and that gate was called the Gate Beautiful. The Jewish historian Josephus described this very gate on the Temple Mount. He said that it was made of fine Corinthian brass, that it was 75 feet high with huge double doors, so beautiful that it, quoting Josephus now, it greatly excelled those that were only covered in silver and gold. I mean, it was such an amazing door made out of brass, but it was done so beautifully and it was so massive that people said, man, this is better than a gate made of silver or gold. And there at that gate, beautiful, did you see what it said? It says, verse 2, A certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, and he asked for alms. It's sort of touching, isn't it? Not only to read about this lame man, he would draw our sympathy anywhere, right? And in our own community, we we, we see people who are asking for alms. And alms is just a, a certain way of asking for, it's begging or asking for a gift or something like that. And we see people like that in our community today. 
And to see someone who's lame asking in that condition, it, it, it elicits more sympathy from you, right? But if you knew that that person was lame from their mother's womb, that would make you even more sympathetic towards them, would it not? To think what, what their life must have been like. That baby's born, and as soon as the baby comes out of the womb, they know something's wrong with that man's leg. It's deformed. It doesn't work right. You know, on whatever that, that scale is that they use to, to evaluate the health and the condition of babies, that baby didn't measure up right, correct? There was something wrong with that boy. And he grew up with that cloud over him all the time. It, it wasn't a case where at one time everything was okay, and, and then everything fell to pieces and he became lame. That would be tragic enough. But this man was lame from his mother's womb, and there he was, laying out, no doubt, right there at the gate, beautiful, thinking, man, I got a great spot. It's a beautiful place. Thousands of religious Jews come through this gate. They want to do their business with God at the temple. And, and, and almsgiving was such a strong tradition within the Jewish. You displayed your righteousness by giving to people in just such a condition as he was. Now, I say was, but it also is to this current day. I didn't experience this myself personally, but a pastor friend told me a story of when he was in Jerusalem and he was in this quarter where there was a man begging and a sort of disheveled man and he was begging and asking for a contribution. And, you know, sometimes this pastor would give to people in that condition. Sometimes he would not. On this time he decided he wasn't going to give to them and he sort of walked past the Well, then just then... An obviously orthodox Jewish man came up, a very large man, just with a really big face. And this is what the man said. The pastor told me that that large Jewish man came up and very demonstrably, never looking at the begging man, his eyes fixed on the pastor, he took a big wad of bills out of his coat and looking at the pastor, he stuffed it into the beggar's cup or hat or whatever it was that he had. Not looking at the beggar once, but looking dead at the pastor as if to saying, I am performing a righteous act by giving to this man one that you did not do. Now, again, this is a very strong tradition in Judaism, both in the ancient world and the modern world. So you can say in a really sense, this man had a good situation on that to be supported in his present condition. Look, you're lame. You're crippled. You're always going to be crippled. The best we can do is support you in your present condition. Won't you please support me in my present condition? Well, he had a pretty good gig going there at the Gate Beautiful because it was a good place. I can imagine that there were other beggars who were envious of his position there, right? They looked at man, I wish I had that sweet spot. And so he had a good reason to believe that maybe Peter and John would help, especially when you see what happens here in verse 4. This is remarkable. And fixing his eyes on him, John with Peter, excuse me, fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Because as they're walking by, this man whom Peter and John must have passed by before, Later on, we're going to find out that that man had lain at the Gate Beautiful begging for years upon years. Surely Peter and John passed this guy before. And you know how it is, right? Beggars, they become invisible after a while. It's just how it is. 
I'm not saying it should be that way with us, but that's just how it is according to human nature. After a while, they become invisible. But for some reason on this day, this man was not invisible to Peter and John. Instead, what happened? It says there in verse 4, fixing his eyes on him. Now, you know how it is when you want to ignore a beggar, right? If you want to ignore a beggar, what's the last thing in the world you do? You don't make eye contact with them, right? You keep it as impersonal as possible. You pass them by without making eye contact. But Peter and John stop, and what do they do? They make this eye contact with the beggar, just honing in right there. It says right there, fixing his eyes on him with John. Peter said, look at us. Oh, man, the guy was thinking, Jack pot, right? <laughs> Not only does this man want to make eye, can- to on- eye contact with me, he's saying, look at me now. Look into my eyes. And then it says, so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Well, you can imagine that he was expecting, was he not? The the, the lame man returned the eye contact that Peter and John gave them, and perhaps he reached out a cup or a hat or whatever it was that he had to gather the generosity of people who would give to him. And he did it full of expectation. Now, I see something there. I see something in that reached out hand, that expectation of the beggar that we should learn from. He expected to receive something from them. Now, he ended up receiving much more than he expected. But don't lose it. The lame man really expected something. And I'll tell you this. You should expect to receive something from God. You really should. And many times that expectation is nothing more than faith in action. When you expect that God will speak to you, you will find that he'll speak to you. When you expect that God will move in your life and transform your life, you'll find God moving in your life and transforming in your life. That expectation is just another way of stating faith. And I don't know, perhaps there's some people here. You've come here this morning and you expect nothing from God. I'm telling you, God can still reach you. God can still leap over your lack of expectations and shake up your life. But you're going to be so much more ready to receive from God if you'll expect something from Him. In this sense, put yourself in the place of the beggar. Lord, I reach out to you. I expect to receive something from you. Not because I'm so wonderful, but because you're so wonderful. And that's why I want to receive from you. Many people have yet to come to the place where they really expect to receive something from God. And you could say it plain and simple, that is faith. Even if you expect less than Jesus really wants to give you, which was the case with this beggar, right? He would have been happy with a few coins. God wanted to give him so much more. God really wanted to blow his mind. So we should live lives of expectation from God and we should expect the right things from God. You know, we're we're very uh, much often too ready to settle for less than God wants to give us. And our low expectations can rob us from what God wants to do in our life. So notice what happens next. We start here at verse 5. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then verse 6 Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. 
Well, I think it's interesting. Just think how this must have impacted the layman, right? The first world, words, silver and gold I do not have. Now, how would that hit the beggar? <laughs> then, mister, why are you wasting my time? People are walking by who might be interacting with me. Can you please, you know, bring somebody who does have a little bit of silver and gold? By the way, I think it's also wonderful that, that Peter wasn't flush with cash, right? He just didn't have it. He goes, look, I don't have any money. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. That raises the hope of the beggar. Well, he's got to give me something. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now that must have blown the beggar's mind. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By the way, he would have this sense, I've heard that name before. If he was camped out at the Gate Beautiful for all those years, he knew what was going on in Jerusalem. And even though Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem, he visited there frequently. And he had some of his most dramatic confrontations with the religious leaders right there in Jerusalem. I personally, I know it's a little bit of speculation, but I personally find it unthinkable that this man would have known nothing about Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, maybe if he knew just a little bit, he knew something of the, he knew the name, Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard that name before. It's a man involved in some controversy. So in the name of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And you think, how could Peter say such a thing? Well, I think there's a few reasons. First of all, Peter knew what it was like to have God use him to heal other people. I'll say it again. Peter already knew what it was like to have God use him to heal other people. Now, make no mistake about it. God did the healing. And I'll cut to, I don't mean to spoil the story. This, this man, this lame man gets healed. I'll just tell you that right now. We haven't got to it yet in the text. I'm sorry if I spoiled the story for somebody, but he does. He... And when this lame man is healed, it wasn't Peter that healed him. Peter will insist, he'll make it very clear. It wasn't me, it wasn't John. It was God who did the healing. Yet Peter knew what it was like to have God use him to accomplish such a healing. Matter of fact, we're told just exactly that in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, Jesus sends the disciples out two by two on a preaching tour around the cities of Galilee. And he didn't send them just to preach, but he also sent them to go out and to, and to minister in power, to, to release people who were bound by demonic spirits, to, to bring forth the healing of God wherever they could. And this is what they said when they came back. Luke chapter 9 verse 6 says this. So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I mean, as part of his work as one of Jesus' disciples, Peter knew what it was like to be used by God to bring forth the healing power of God. And so that's what he says to the man. He says, listen, God wants to heal you today. Now, he prefaced it with those sort of sad words. At least it seems to us sad, right? We're going to find out they're not so sad. Silver and gold I do not have. For some people, those are about the worst words that could ever be said, right? Silver and gold I do not have. And some people in the church feel that if the church runs out of silver and gold, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to the church. Well, I'll tell you, it's not the worst thing that could ever happen to the church, is it? 
Listen, we all know this, right? We all know that we're in a general season of tight economic times, are we not? And it affects people who want to give. And we pray it all the time. I tell you, this is what I pray. I pray that when God would provide for the church, I say, God, bless the people in this church who have a heart to give. Because I know that if God blesses you, you'll give unto the church and things will be great. But you know, this is such an encouragement to me. Because even when you feel that, that, that the church doesn't have all the money, even when the church isn't, so to speak, flush with cash, you feel like, wow, we've got all the money to do whatever we would want to do, you realize this. Silver and gold is not the most important thing to having a living, active church of God, is it? Peter didn't say, silver and gold, I have none. Let's close up shop. <laughs> no, he said, silver and gold, I do not have. Listen, it's much worse if the church never has the spiritual power to say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, there's a story and. It could very well be just one of those preacher stories. The world is filled with these preacher stories. Who knows if they're true or not? But they, they illustrate a point. And it's said that in, in the medieval days, that there was a, a poor monk who was walking through the Pope, you know, through the glories of the Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica. And the Pope was showing him this statue and this great work of art and this gold altarpiece and all this such. And at the end of it all, the Pope, with some satisfaction, he said to the monk, Well, isn't it wonderful? We no longer have to say what Peter said. We no longer have to say, silver and gold I do not have. And the monk replied this. He said, but neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ and Nazareth, wise, wise up and walk. And you know what? If it came to between a choice between the two, wouldn't it be better to have the power of God? And this is what we need to keep our hearts and our minds upon. Now, I pray that God would provide financially, and I believe that he wants to, and I think that he did for the early church. But listen, this is a call for perspective, right? To say that the most important things that the church does and works with and ministers in, they don't have to do with silver and gold. But when Peter and John gave this man no money, you might have heard the layman complain. Mister, you don't care about me. You won't support me. Look at the mess that I'm in. But Peter and John, they wanted to give the man far something greater than just support in his present condition. They wanted to transform that man's life by the power of Jesus Christ. And so they got ready to do it. He said, what I have, I give to you. Did you notice that in verse 6? Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. He gave lame man power in the name of Jesus, but Peter could not do it unless he first had it in his own life, right? It wasn't a case like this. Uh, silver and gold I do not have, but I heard there's power in Jesus somewhere out there. I hope you get some of it. No, Peter could say, I know what it's like to have my life transformed by the power of God. I have experienced the transforming power of God. Now I want to give it to you. And friends, isn't this a very powerful spiritual principle? You see, many people want to be able to say, rise up and walk without having received the power of Jesus to transform their own life. You can't give to somebody else what you don't have. And so it begins with what God did in Peter. 
And I'll say this, what God did in Peter, it wasn't fast, it wasn't easy, but it was slow and thorough and painful. But he had the transforming power of God in his life. Therefore, he was able to give it to somebody else. Now listen, I'm not trying to say that Peter had the power to heal people at will. But I am saying that Peter did know the miraculous power of God in his life. So how's this going to work? You can imagine what an awkward situation. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then to give force to it all, look at what he says, verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Man, that was bold, isn't it? Wow. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now listen, it was one thing for Peter to say, rise up and walk. It was entirely another thing to grab that man by the hand, right? And to lift him up to his feet. At that moment, I believe, in the village, it's not specifically said in the text, I believe that God gave Peter what we would call the gift of faith. It's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, as one of the spiritual gifts that God would bestow upon his people. And at that moment, God gave Peter the gift of faith to know Peter, I'm going to heal that guy. You can be so bold as to lift him up. And you know why I say that? I, I don't believe that Peter would have pulled him to his feet on speculation. Do you? Ah, I don't know. 30% chance it might work. Let's pull him up and see what happens. Does anybody think it could have worked like that? No, 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 no. This wasn't something that Peter did on a whim. It wasn't a promotional event. He did it under the specific prompting of the Holy Spirit. God gave Peter at that moment the supernatural ability to believe him and to trust him for something completely out of the ordinary. And God spoke to his heart saying, do it right now. Now, I've never experienced this in such a dramatic way. This In less dramatic ways, I believe I've experienced the gift of faith where God has spoken, believe me for this against all odds, believe me for this. I heard a story once, it was actually from Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. He tells a remarkable story about the early days of his ministry when God gave him the gift of faith. He was teaching at a church in Arizona, and I believe this was, I'm supposing that it was even before he ever came to Calvary Chapel. But teaching at a church in Arizona, and there he is, and, and at that service, somebody brought uh, uh, somebody up in a wheelchair to him. And he saw the man in the wheelchair, and they brought the man up in the wheelchair for prayer. A couple of ladies rolled him up. They wanted to pray for the guy. And so Pastor Chuck looked at the man, and God spoke to him and gave him the gift of faith. And the gift of faith said, pull that man out of the wheelchair. Just just do it. I'm going to heal that man. I want you to pull him out of the wheelchair because I'm going to heal him. Very much similar to what happened with Peter. And so as the story goes, as, as I heard it from Pastor Chuck, he, he, he grabbed the man's hand, he pulled him out of the wheelchair, and instantly the man was healed. And he could walk. He was fully functioning in his legs, and whatever paralysis, whatever his problem was that put him in the wheelchair, was instantly healed. And the women who brought him up were beside themselves. You know what they said? They said, he has a cold. We brought him up to be prayed for a cold. It, I mean, isn't that wonderful? Well, you can imagine what a commotion that was. 
Yeah, that's such a great story. You know, even if I don't live those stories, when they're so great, I have to give them to you. Well, in my mind, the story gets even better because you can imagine what a commotion that would be, right? And, and apparently the next evening, Chuck was doing another meeting at the same church. You can imagine church would be more filled, right? And there's a couple people in wheelchairs there, right? And somebody came up to Pastor Chuck. If I remember the story right, it was his son. And he said, Dad, are, are you going to pull this guy out of his wheelchair? And Chuck said, no. God gave me the gift of faith to do it yesterday. God spoke to me and said, I'm going to heal this man, do it. He said, I would never do such a thing without God giving me that gift of faith. It's not just presumption. It's not just a whim. Oh, I think I'll heal this guy. The, the, the power to do this healing isn't resident within the person. It's resident within God. But God uses these human agents, does he not? And what happened? It says immediately his feet and bones received strength. Strength did not come to the lame man until Peter said, rise up and walk, and until Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And with that word of faith and that gift of faith, wow, God did an amazing work in this man. I find a very interesting comment that G. Campbell Morgan makes in his commentary. He says that the word description that Luke gives here of this man being healed, where it says, Immediately his feet and bones receive strength. He said that it is actually a very detailed medical description. Maybe I could, uh, I could uh, read to you just a little bit from G. Campbell Morgan's comments on this. He said, perhaps only medical men can fully appreciate the meaning of these words. They are peculiar technical words of a medical man. The word translated feet is only used by Luke and occurs nowhere else. It indicates his discrimination between the different parts of the human feet of the human heel. The phrase ankle bones is again a medical phrase to be found nowhere else. The word leaping up describes coming suddenly into socket of something that was out of place and the articulation of a joint. This then is a very careful medical description of what happened in connection with this man. I find it interesting for two reasons. First of all, it says, well, obviously, Dr. Luke. Luke was a physician. He wrote this. But it also makes me think that the detail of the description makes me wonder if Luke didn't interview this man personally. Don't you have that feel? That when Luke was researching for his, for his great book, the, the, the book of Acts, that he interviewed people like this. And, and he found out exactly what happened medically within the man. Nevertheless, the man healed. You saw what he did. He entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. And everybody was blown away because they knew that it was the one who sat begging for alms. Now, we're going to find out in the next chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 4, that this man was more than 40 years old, crippled since birth. He must have been a familiar sight at the temple, right? But here's something I want you to think about. I bring it up here. I kind of wanted to save it for the very end, but we're not far from the end. Listen, if that man camped out at the gate beautiful for years upon years, Jesus must have passed him by many times. Isn't that staggering to think about? Now, Jesus, who obviously, obviously, God used mightily to heal. Jesus, who healed many people in worse condition. I think Lazarus, when he was dead in the tomb, don't you think he was in worse condition? (laughs) Jesus passed this man by. And why? 
Did Jesus hate the man? No, never. Did Jesus lack the power to minister to the man? No, never. But in the plan of God, we we would say, and I know this isn't right to say, I think you understand what I mean. In the plan of God, God delayed the healing for the time of Peter and John. I think that way when I think of people who want healing from God today. Friends, I believe that God heals. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it with my own life. There are hundreds of people in this church who can give you testimony to the healing power of God. God does it, and he does it today, but let's be honest about this. There are sometimes, for whatever reason, God does not heal, right? And sometimes people that, that we very comfortably thought would be healed, they, they were not. I know we're, we're touching on some big areas of theology here, but let me say this. I believe that God has promised healing for every Christian. I honestly believe that. But for all of us, for every believer, it won't finally be realized until we're resurrected. That is our ultimate healing, right? And and let's face it. Whatever healing that God does between now and then is glorious. And we thank Him for it. And we'd love to see God do more healing work and not less. But whatever He does, it's just patching up the tent. I'm waiting for a mansion. And I feel funny talking because this is why I feel funny. Because I don't want to say this in anybody to say, don't believe that God wants to heal. No, you should believe that God wants to heal. Don't believe that God can heal. No, you should believe that God can heal. But the fact that Jesus passed by this beggar many times and did not heal until it was right in his timing shows us we just can't figure out God's timing, right? How many times have you been confident you knew what God's timing was all about? Matter of fact, you laid out a little schedule for God, right? And God, God lovingly disagreed with you. And showed you a better way. Listen, my, my heart grieves for those who are taken from this world because of some kind of sickness or injury, especially when people are praying for them that they would be healed. We believe that they are healed in the glorious resurrection that God has promised to each one of us and to our bodies. But we leave those things in the wisdom of God. Never resigning ourselves to fatalism. No, never. But into a living, active trust of God. I I almost think, and I don't want to get melodramatic about this, but could you imagine the loving look that Jesus probably gave this beggar as he walked by him? I got something great for you. Not today, later. I've got a plan. I've got something wonderful for you. I know you would want it from me today, but no, it's in my plan, it's going to be better later. Well, let's look at the result here. Verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which was called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though through our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? I love what it says right there in verse 11, that this man who was formerly lame, it says that he held on to Peter and John. 
And you say, why would he hold on to them? I mean, there was strength in his legs, strength in his feet. He could stand. He was healed. Then why did he hold on to them? I'll tell you why he held on. Because hundreds of people were running at them because of the commotion. He was like, oh, my heavens, what's going on here? Why are all these people running at us? What's all this commotion about? It says that the people ran together to them greatly amazed. And what happened to Peter when he saw that? Well, just filled with boldness in the Spirit of God, he said, I've got an audience for preaching again. (laughs) Pentecost had happened, I don't know how much earlier, right? A few days, a couple weeks, we don't know exactly the timing. But he said, oh, this is another crowd. Let me warm up my vocal cords. And he wisely took advantage of the gathering crowd. He knew that the phenomenon of the miraculous brought no one to Jesus in itself, but it merely aroused interest. Those people were greatly amazed, but they weren't saved yet. But Peter would preach to them the gospel by which they could come to salvation. You know, you would think that this would have been a great time for a testimony service, right? Let's have the healed man give a testimony. Peter didn't do that. Probably the healed man wasn't ready. And Peter knew this. That even the great testimony of that man, that wasn't the gospel. Those people needed to hear the gospel. And that's what Peter's going to give them in this message. Peter knew that what the crowd needed to hear, even more than the healed man's experience, was the gospel of Jesus Christ and a call to repent and to believe. The healed man didn't know enough yet to share that. So Peter said, friend, I'm going to do the speaking. Everybody knows what's happened here. Let me explain this to the people. Peter knew that saving faith did not come by seeing or hearing about miracles. Instead, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's what Peter was going to share with them. And so Peter starts off by saying this. Did you notice it? He says this, verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as through our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? I love how Peter says that. Because listen, whenever God uses a man or a woman, the tendency is always within that man or the woman to give other people the impression that the reason why God used them is because they're so spiritual. If God happens to use me, I don't mind you thinking it's because I'm a spiritual giant. There's something awful within human nature that's like that, right? That needs to be suppressed and denied at all times. Listen, what God did through Peter wasn't through him. It was through God's power. And Peter was merely the tool, merely the vessel. And so finally, he says there in verse 12, Why do you marvel at this? Peter's point was very simple. Jesus healed all sorts of people when he walked this earth. Why should it seem strange that he would continue to heal people from heaven? And that's what Jesus was doing. And now going on, starting at verse 13, Peter's going to start to preach a glorious sermon to this crowd. But we're going to have to save that for next time. That's just kind of a cliffhanger, as we call it in the business. And it's, it's a great message. And like I say, we'll get to it the following time. Friends, my my heart is just full of this great theme that, first of all, that, that just as Peter said, such as I have, I give to you. You need to have the reality of a spiritual work in you before you can give it to other people. And this is very important. 
Because I know there's many of you, you're very burdened for the people around you. And God bless you for being burdened for the people around you. You've got a child or a parent or a relative or a friend. And your heart, you want to see God do a work in them so much. Well, listen, did you ever thought that maybe the most effective way that you could reach them is by beginning with letting God do a great work in you and yielding to him right now? How about this? You're on the airplane, right? And what do they tell you to do if a child's next to you and the oxygen mask come down? They say, yeah, put your own on first, then deal with the child, right? Let God deal with your life first. Then you have something to give to that person. The other thing I want you to call to is I later on in the service, when we give people a call to prayer, if you want prayer for healing, you, you come forward. And, and I'll, I'll promise you this. I can absolutely promise you this. If you come up, people will pray for you. They'll pray for you in faith and you'll be loved. And then we'll leave the healing power of God into his wisdom, into his timing. And maybe God would give somebody who's praying for you the gift of faith to just pronounce you healed at that moment. Maybe so. But even that is in the hand of God, is it not? And we trust Him and His great wisdom. But now let's just worship such a great God, should we not?